230 patients. Waiting time for some was as long as 12 hours. And one of the things you can do because I, you know, I know what it's like if you're a parent and you've got a sick kid and you just you, you want to you do anything to have them seen, evaluated, and get them better. Um, so, you know, the idea of trooping to the emergency room is sort of like, okay, let's just do it. But the hospital is urging people to go to the website and they have some tools there that can kind of help you decide whether or not your child actually needs to be seen by a physician or if this is something you can treat at home and wait out. It is a 6.52, Test Tube Thursday, which means a conversation with our science expert, Dr. Dan Riskin. Good morning, Dan. Good morning. How are you? I'm good, although now I'm uh, terrified of the Tibetan virus. What's going on here? Yeah, but this is, uh, I, you know what, maybe that's okay. Maybe it's okay to be terrified of the virus, even though the virus isn't the dangerous thing. I, I think it's a, a way of personifying what climate change is and the, with these sort of unknown scary things that lurk. We know already that climate change is melting uh, permafrost, and that's releasing even more carbon, releasing methane, which is accelerating climate change. And that is going to have knock-on effects that are really, really negative. But this latest sort of paper is catching people's attention because what they did is they went to the top of a Tibetan plateau in China and they took ice cores and then they they have this really neat way of of cleaning off the sides of the ice core so basically they're taking like an ice cube out of the out of the ice they clean the side so that it's not contaminated with dna from the people that picked it up and stuff like that or modern dna and then they they dig into the ice and look for ancient stuff and what they found is some viruses and these the word virus scares everybody right away because we just had a really bad the last time two and COVID. a half years. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So we're primed to, to worry about it. But the thing is, there are viruses all over the place. There are viruses at the bottom of the ocean. There are viruses in the soil. There are viruses everywhere. And the viruses that are around today might not be the same as the viruses that were around before. And lo and behold, when they looked at these viruses that they found in the ice, 28 of them out of the 33, almost the majority of them had never been seen before. And so it seems like, okay, these viruses are going to come and infect all of us and it's going to launch this disease but they can tell from the from the dna or the rna of the viruses depending what kind it is um you know what its host probably is and and because of what it's related to and it looks like most of these viruses infect bacteria that live in the soil so they're not going to get into your lungs and cause damage. I mean, never say never. The viruses, you know, can always surprise you somehow. There might be one lurking in there that they didn't actually scan. But that said, what they're really doing is getting a picture of what the community of viruses looked like in this place long time ago and so that these are these are ice cores from 400 years ago or from 14,000 or 1400 years ago sorry 14,000 years ago and they're very different from what we see today and so it's giving sort of a snapshot of ancient uh communities of viruses it's not something we need to worry about but the the, the melting of the ice does bring risks it's just not that particular risk so maybe if it gets us scared we should just convert that that fear over to carbon instead of thinking about viruses. Okay, so it's not the opening frames of a thriller movie that ultimately will have a scene where the mayor of a small town says, I don't care about this ancient virus, you've got to have this dance competition. Yeah, I think I'd watch that movie. That sounds really good. <laughs> okay. This actually <laughs> flows very easily into the next topic, and that would be how the Black Death, the plague, shaped the evolution of immunity genes. How so? 
Well, the the Black Plague, I think it's it's helpful to think when we hear about the Black Plague back in the past, we say, oh, I lived through a pandemic too. But with the Black Plague, like half of people died in cities. I mean, it was it was a big, huge thing that makes COVID-19 look like a walk in the park. And COVID-19 was not a walk in the park. So um, it really sort of drives home the potential and the reasons we worry about these things. Um, but what they were able to do in this latest study is look at the DNA of people who died before the, the Black Plague happened, and then look at people who were killed by the Black Plague, and then look at people who survived the Black Plague and the ensuing generations. And you can actually see natural selection happen because it turns out there are a couple of spots in the genome where if you're lucky enough to have one allele, you your likelihood of surviving the plague was like 50% higher compared to if you were unlucky enough to have a different allele of that gene. And so they were able to show that there was variability in this gene before the Black Plague swept through. And then after it goes through, most of the people who have the bad copy are gone and the people who had the good copy survive. And so it changed the average DNA of people as a, as a selective event. And this is exactly how evolution is modeled. This is exactly how we understand evolution to work. And this is what happened. But what's neat about it is that if you have the quote unquote good gene that helps against the Black Plague, like a lot of Europeans and, and Asians do, because that's one of the places where the Black Plague swept through, um, if you have that good copy of the gene that protects you against Black Plague, it actually makes you more likely to have things like Crohn's disease or rheumatoid arthritis or lupus. So there are other diseases that you don't want to have that version of the gene. So what's good, what's bad, it's, it depends what disease you're up against. And that's the roll of the dice that is evolution. You don't know what you're coming up against next. And sometimes a, a version of a gene that helps in one situation doesn't help in a different situation. And so it's really a neat snapshot of how that really huge event in our history, the biggest strongest disease that's ever swept through us that we know of, um, how it affected our DNA. And I was reading up on this, Dan, and uh, learned that the way they did the research was because people knew where the bodies were buried. There were mass grave sites of people who had died from the plague, so they were able to, to use modern DNA science in order to extract uh, DNA and figure out what the profiles of those people were. Exactly. So there, there are these mass graves that are, were specifically for people who died in the Black Plague. I mean, you can, it's just, it's hard to get your head around what a terrible time in history that would have been. Um, and the Nobel Prize uh, went recently to someone who worked on ancient DNA and worked on Neanderthals and stuff. And a lot of the technologies that allow us to get DNA from old fossils and, and old skeletons uh, are relatively new. And so these technologies, as they emerge, they start to help us answer questions we've had for a long time. And, and this is a good example of a question people have had for a long time. And now the methods are, are available. Okay, so apparently aliens are not visiting us and it's because we're not listed as attractive enough on Expedia. There's this thing called the Fermi paradox, and it's named after a guy named Fermi, who was a physicist who apparently articulated this by saying, if the galaxy is teeming with intelligent life, where is everybody? The idea is if, if the galaxy, if there's probably an intelligent civilization somewhere that can make rocket ships, shouldn't they be here? Shouldn't we see them? And people have done the math and said, okay, let's say that somebody evolves in the Milky Way galaxy uh, and comes up with the technology to, to visit nearby stars. Well, if they do that, they're going to probably visit the hundred nearby stars to them. And then once they get there, they're going to visit the hundred nearby stars to that. And they're going to spread and they're going to cover the whole Milky Way galaxy. And they did the back of the envelope math and they said, it's only going to take them, you know, a, a, maybe half a million years to cover the whole Milky Way galaxy. So that's not 
not very long. If they exist at all, where are they? And so this has been taken as evidence that there is no intelligent life out there because if there were, they would have visited us by now. But this new paper says, hang on, maybe they don't just visit every star randomly. Maybe they're looking for stars that will live for a long time so that when they get there, they can establish a base that's gonna last for a long time instead of having to continually make new ones. If that's true, our star isn't gonna cut it. So maybe they just didn't come here. Maybe they've been traveling all across the Milky Way galaxy looking for good stars, but they just haven't gotten here yet. And specifically, if that's their, their strategy, they're gonna adopt a strategy where they sort of get to a star and they set up their civilization and then they wait for a good star to pass by because the stars all move in the spiraling galaxy. Maybe they wait for a good one to come by and then they jump to it there. That's gonna slow their spread a little bit and it's gonna prevent them from coming to our Milky Way or our, to our corner of the Milky Way galaxy. So maybe there still is life out there. They're just having visited us because our sun just doesn't quite cut it as a tourist destination. Okay. All this reminds me of a comedian named Barry Julian who talks about earthlings who insist they've been contacted and had encounters with aliens. And as he says, you'd think after the first couple of visits, they'd quit with the anal probes. <laughs> Maybe that's why they keep coming back. Maybe that's what makes our, our place such a great uh, tourist destination for aliens. Who knows? <laughs> Thank you, sir. Good to have you. <laughs> Thank you. That's Dan Riskin, our science expert, Test Tube Thursdays. Um, like I said, 6.50 every morning, we have one of our specialists. On Fridays, it's always a visit from Maureen Holloway. I'm looking forward to that on a sweet, sweet Friday. Right now, it's 7 o'clock.